Hey y'all, what if you really could change your life? If there was a way to be healthy and intentional in every area of your life? Good news, there is. And we show you how each week on All of You Whole. Hosted by me, Caroline Fossil, entrepreneur, wellness expert, author, and speaker. Every episode is an in-depth look at how to help you get unstuck, be brave in your life choices, and have a meaningful life. All either from my own experiences or from the experts I interview. My goal is to help you build a healthy, connected, and intentional life that fulfills your greatest purpose. Today on the All of You Whole podcast, we are graced by the presence of Kiani Igwe. She has been a teacher in the classroom. She has been a children's minister, which is where I met her, and she is currently studying to get her Master's of Divinity. She is just a wealth of knowledge, and she shares all of that with us today on the show. She stands for the liberation of black children, which I absolutely love, and we'll get into liberation and what that means on the show today. We're also going to talk about things like white privilege, white normalcy, even white supremacy, and really the things that we can do beyond reading some books about racism to be anti-racist. This is such an important show, and I really hope that you learned something and are challenged to go deeper in your anti-racism journey as I was. So let's dive right in. Okay. Welcome, Kiani. We are so, so just honored is the word I think of. Just honored and excited to have you on the All of You Whole podcast today. I'm excited to be here. Yay. Okay. First, I just want you to tell us a little bit about you and your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. I'm Kiani. I use she, her pronouns, and I have centered my life around the liberation of children, particularly black and brown children. And so I started my career as a teacher, then moved into being a children's minister for a couple of years. And now I work in policy full-time and go to school full-time for Master's in Divinity, where I focus on race and religion and religious education. So Amazing. that's my background. That's what I've been yes. doing. Um, that's why I do it. I know. Well, and I should tell you, Kiani and I met when we were living in Atlanta for a few years and she was a children's minister where we went to church and got to teach Ella and Owen. And I mean, they were so much smaller then. Like, Owen, so small. I can't take them on social media. I'm like, they're so big. They're so huge. And yeah, they were so tiny there. So Owen like doesn't even remember Atlanta at all, but Ella still very fondly remembers Kiani. So That's my girl. I know. I just want to hear, I'm like so excited about the Masters in Divinity part. And I want to hear based on kind of where you've been and where you're going, how does the Masters in Divinity fit in? Like what made you think this is the path for me? <laughs> sure. It is funny because I do firmly believe like as wonderful a seminary education is, like not everyone needs it. Like you can sort of sure. walk out calling and understanding and I will never master divinity. So it's a very sure. funny degree. <laughs> yeah. But when I was a children's minister for the time that I was, I had a couple of opportunities to preach and teach teaching is very much my bag. And so like coming from teaching classrooms and then teaching tiny humans and then teaching teachers how to teach tiny humans, all of that. (laughs) Um, And so at the time it was more like, I love learning. I'm a learner by nature. This makes sense as something that could make me more qualified on paper, more knowledgeable. I am a preacher's kid, but I didn't feel comfortable just going into preaching. And that's not what I'm going to do with my life anyway. Yeah. But as I moved into my MDiv, what i really love about it is what it's teaching me about not only like the text, I'm a Bible nerd, so I love that, but also about the ways in which we think about who God is, the ways we think Mm -hmm. about community and church. And I think a lot about because of my most recent experience in ministry about how we teach kids. Like I was really frustrated by sort of what we believe kids are capable of understanding, sort of the routine we've sort of gotten into over the last 50, 60 years of just memorizing a bunch of stories, some of which are not (laughs) developmentally appropriate for children. Sure. Yeah. And so I, I love writing curriculum. It's I, That's my favorite thing to do. So I do in my free time is like, right. Yes. I'm a weirdo, <laughs> but like writing curriculum for kids and families. And so my right. MDiv, I really see as both informing my work in faith-based advocacy and policy, but also sure. giving me a better foundation to write curriculum for parents and families that is faith-based, but is a little bit more expansive around what we think about the divine and people that is yes. affirming and rooted in justice and belonging. Yep. And really thinks about who kids are as opposed to just like memorize the story and then draw a picture. Um, yes. 
So, oh my gosh. Okay. So I just need you to hurry up and make this because I I work it. I work it. (laughs) I like need this for my kids. I think all the time, like, you know, we'll like memorize scripture or like have great conversations, but I'm like, it would be so great to have some really strong curriculum. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, awesome. Okay. I hear you often talk about this word liberation, which I am going to adopt too. I just love it so much. And so I want you to just explain to us, like, why do you use that word specifically instead of some of these other terms that we hear like racial reconciliation or justice? Like talk to us about liberation. Yeah, actually, I've only adopted that word probably in the last... 2022, three or four years, I definitely started off in the racial reconciliation camp. My partner and I did racial reconciliation work with a church Carol and I went to together with some really good friends that we still are in contact with. Right. And for me, what I realized was that term I let go of because the idea of reconciliation is rooted in the idea that there was at some point conciliation. And for me, between the races <laughs> in America, that's just not the case. Like, and there was like a good time. There are, there was, there were no, yeah, like everyone haven't been there. That yeah. hasn't happened uh, no. from white, white to black, black to Asian, white to Latinx or Hispanic, whatever sure. word you prefer. Like, th- th- that's not a thing. And so, I think it misguides people to be like, oh, we're just trying to get along. And I'm right. like, no, people got along on plantations. That's not what I'm looking for. Sure. It's so much more than that. Yeah. Like it's so much more than people coexisting. And I also think that a lot of times this sentiment of like, we're done. We did it. We are reconciled. Mm-hmm. Now we like go to the same church or I have black friends or whatever. I have black children. My husband's black. Yeah. Yes. All of that. It If we use that term racial reconciliation, I feel like what could happen and correct me if I'm wrong is like we arrived and we did that, but Absolutely. there's so much more to do. It just misses think, a lot. It misses a lot because I think reconciliation for a lot of people is rooted in feelings, right? Like when you reconcile right. with your partner, mm-hmm. you reconcile with your child. It's about, we were, there was a tense feeling. We were at odds. There was a conflict in our emotions and we've come to a sort of standing ground or a good place in our feelings. And I think rooting the work of race in feelings is often centers white folks, but also misses like the material issue, right? Like, yes, black folks can go to a church where there are folks of other races, but if they're still being asked to assimilate to majority culture, then what are we really doing? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, when I would post on social media something that's anti-racist, I had literal comments that were, racism is done. There's zero racism left in the world. But this was so next level for me. I also had people telling me, you, Caroline, are perpetuating racism because it like was a healed wound and you won't let it go. <laughs> like you're perpetuating it. And it's like, okay, well, there's a lot to unpack here. That's so it's a really common, <laughs> it's gosh. a really common response. And honestly, I think the teacher in me, what I'm seeing is, okay, the word has developed. Right. Racism, the word itself has developed. To, it's like science, right? Like there was, yeah. not, there was a time where we thought the world was flat. And we don't think that anymore. Right. There was a time we thought we understood what an atom was or how sure. genes work or even like genetics around homosexuality. Like there, there right. was a time, there was a certain understanding and that understanding has now been expanded and developed. And right. I think we're much more willing to receive it around science, anti-vax movement. Let's bark, not even, yeah. You know, outside of yeah. that when we are around social science, which racism is part of the social sciences. Mm. And that's an understanding that's been expanded. Also considering the fact that the social sciences were still a majority space for a very long time when the words of racism, prejudice are being developed. And so I think some of it's people's like, they just don't know that's changed and like not being a learner. And so it's like, oh, sweetheart, you're still developing. You're at a fifth grade level of this word and we've moved on. And we've moved on. You're not willing to move. Like you're 37 and you're at, and and so I like want to be compassionate towards that. But it also is like, I think because racism was taught as feelings for a long time, people have a hard time seeing its impact in the material world. Yes. Because we were taught, I know I was taught in school, Mm -hmm. it was mostly about like, they treated Black people poorly. They were mean to them. And I was like, yes, mean is bad, but also like not having (laughs) access to home loans. Sure. So many things. Right. Okay. Well, that's great because I wanted to first ask you, what is your current definition of racism? Like wake us up to where are we now? 
yeah, racism for me feels like a, I could write a book about just the definition. Sure. But my working definition as it stands right now is the combination of power and prejudice that systematically disenfranchises minority groups, mostly impacting Black folks and moving across the spectrum to white. So it impacts Black folks, Mm. Latinx folks, Asian folks, all at disparate. This is an American definition. Also, let me say it's not a global definition. Uh At disparate levels because of our history. So yeah, I think a systematic disenfranchisement. Which is so good because you've hinted about this like material disenfranchisement of black and brown folks. But I want to know like what powers and practices and policies are most damaging to black flourishing? Because I think a lot of people think, and I know this because they've told me on my Instagram, we all start in the same place. And if you just work really hard and what are bootstraps, you know, just pull yourself up. We don't have bootstraps anymore, but like find them and pull yourselves up by them. Like just all of this crap that we hear of like, it's just all the same and they just don't work as hard. Just this terrible stuff that like honestly makes me want to throw up. But like, I want to know to you, where do you see this like material difference and what types of things are most damaging, do you think? Yeah, I actually think it's hard to quantify most damaging. It's one of those ways in which I think, I don't know if it's capitalism, I don't know if it's American culture where we mm. like want to put numbers on everything so that we right. know what it is. Where I'm like, it actually is all really bad. I almost curse. I don't know if you curse on your podcast. Uh, also, I don't know that we've terrible. decided yet. <laughs> we can put an terrible. explicit on this. Fair enough. <laughs> but I think yes. it's for me, I think about it in the sort of the the life story of a person. So like yes. currently I'm a pregnant person. Yay. In black <laughs> very excited. In black maternal health rates in right. America, particularly in Georgia, are terrible. Terrible. And a lot of that is rooted in the way in which medical professionals are taught. Yep. About black bodies. Yes. About black pain. Yes. And a lot of it, particularly for maternal health, is about the ways in which obstetrics and gynecology as a field was established at using enslaved women's bodies without their consent and a lot of terrible, awful, scary things. Man. So there's that, right? That like black women are more likely to die in childbirth than white women at an exorbitant rate. Right. And I'm going to pause you because I want to get explicit here for a second, because what I've heard is that doctors literally do not believe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. black women, absolutely whatever they're saying. So like something's wrong. I just literally got chills all over my body. I'm not even kidding you, but like I'm in pain. Mm -hmm. Something feels weird. Something feels weird. Something's wrong. Mm -hmm. There's a literal disbelief. And that is just exorbitantly inappropriate. It's devastating. It's devastating. I mean, there are stories about like Serena Williams and Allison Felix who are like popular female black athletes who like you would think people who are very in touch with their body, like as people who like their body is their job, who said after the birth of their first child, they both only have one, I think likely rooted in a lot of this trauma that, hey, something doesn't feel right. I think Serena had a very uh, aggressive hemorrhage after her child was born. And Allison, I can't remember what the specific issue was, but both of them came very close to disability and or death in their postpartum because they were communicating to the medical professionals, something doesn't feel right. I mean, I'm thinking now as someone who's going to have a baby, like I can't imagine laying there postpartum, my brand new baby, I'm exhausted. I've just done labor. Like I've had none, you know, and I'm saying something feels weird and people aren't listening to me. Oh my, I mean, like that's unbelievable, but okay. Let's add in the fact that if you're hemorrhaging, you're losing crap tons of blood and you start to be like, you know what I mean? Like you start Mm -hmm. to lose it. Like you start to not be coherent. So then you're like, I need to say this, but I'm about to lose (laughs) like consciousness. And I don't know. And I'm the only one who knows that it's like, it's in my my body. Well, and even just like, we'll go on this tangent for a minute because my husband's a physician and even the training, the textbooks, like Mm -hmm. I saw something recently. I want to say this might not be right, but I want to say it was like an Asian student studying to be a doctor and he was rewriting a dermatology book because it was all white skin. Yeah. And it was like, this rash is going to look, and he was documenting Like, this is this rash for a white person. This is this rash that looks like for an Asian person. This is what this rash, this is how it manifests for a black person because it's all different. And all of the training was just for white people. So it just expands 
even beyond OBGYN to just uh, everything. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's it's a, a white centering in health care that leads to disparate outcomes for right. folks of the global majority. Mm-hmm. And if you move to schools, right? Like I was an educator, so this I could talk about for a lifetime. Right. But the disparate funding for public schools in particular across right. lines of race and social economic status is dramatic. The kinds so of dramatic. training teachers receive, the kind of resources available to schools, the kind of curriculum that is taught in the rigor or sort of like the strenuousness of that mm-hmm. curriculum, the opportunities available to children as a result of who's in those buildings and the funding they receive. I taught ninth, seventh, and fifth grade at various times and in underfunded schools. And it was amazing to me the things kiddos had just not yet seen at, oh. at the age of 13 or 15. Um, and then therefore don't know what's possible for right. if what college or career, whatever comes afterwards. Right. And so there's that, right? So for that experience. And then you think about, for me, I think about after that, I think about higher education mm-hmm. and the ways in which HBCUs are dramatically underfunded compared to other public universities and have to always advocate to get the same kind of funding. And that the argument could be made like, oh, there's, there's schools for only Black children, but it's not a rule. Like anyone can go to an HBCU. Right, yeah. As a choice that is made. But at the same time, they were instituted for a reason and they are a historic part of our country and should be funded yes. appropriately. Yeah. So there's that. And then I think about jobs and applications. My partner and I are in the middle of thinking about names for our child. And we don't know what the gender of the tiny human is. And so we've thought about traditionally male or traditionally uh, masculine or feminine names. And my partner's Nigerian. And so we've also thought about cultural names. And we have other Black friends who have named their children. They're named their children who are now 10, 7, 5 in light of the fact that their resume will be less likely to be looked at if it is a ethnic, for lack of a better word, name. And he and right. I both have names that are really large. Like my name's Keanu, his name's Abiyandu. Like we are black on paper. That's very obvious. And <laughs> we're very grateful to have roles, but it does impact. It does. There's been studies on this about like yes. how often your resume is looked at regardless of your credentials. And yeah. then, you know, as an adult, there are all these other things, right? So like you're less likely to get a home loan. You're, less you're gonna get a worse interest rate as a black person. You have realtors who may or may not work with you or may not might show you homes in a certain area. Also, you gotta think about gentrification in black neighborhoods where folks are coming in and buying homes from traditionally black or minority owners to then turn them into areas that are not as affordable for folks of that minority in that SES in that area. There's uh, state violence, so Mm -hmm. police in schools and then police who are on the streets who are more likely to pull over Black drivers, who are more likely to ticket Black drivers, who are more likely to cause physical harm to Black drivers, regardless of Mm -hmm. age or gender. The rate at which Black transgender women are dying at the hands of violence, both by the state and by Mm -hmm. folks who are not employed by the state. There's the lack of access to voting. That's happening. That's something that's, I think, big oh, in the news this week, Georgia. right? Like, yep. mm-hmm. Georgia, first of all, that. Um, bless, yeah. Georgia. <laughs> Blessing. Bless Georgia. <laughs> but also the ways in which access to the ballot is varied based on where you live and the racial makeup of where you live. The ways in which even what you need to vote, right? So like if you need a driver's license, does everyone mm-hmm. have a driver's license? The ways in which marijuana is legislated against and regards right. to other drugs that are similar and the racial makeup of folks who use that drug. Mm-hmm. And the same can be said of cocaine, right? Back in the day. Absolutely. Yes. The different, like the, the variation that was crack made between and, like crack and cocaine mm-hmm. and the ways right. in which that was very strictly across lines of race. Right, right. And the war on drugs was a Mm -hmm. war on black and brown neighborhoods, a war on Mm -hmm. immigrant and poor neighborhoods. And so those are the material realities that I think folks are either unaware of or unaware maybe perhaps of the expansiveness of those issues. I think even particularly with state violence, people are like, well, if you haven't been pulled over, if you haven't been shot, like it doesn't impact you. And I thought a lot about this before I was pregnant. And I think I work really hard Mm -hmm. not to make it a part of my brain just for the sake of my tiny human. Yes. But I was I am, I am, was terrified to raise a black boy because yes. they are traditionally seen as older. They're coded mm-hmm. older yes. earlier. Yes. And then they are more likely to be seen as violent. Obi is right. 31, my partner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he still thinks about whether or not to walk outside with a hood. I know. It's, it's, 
there are material realities that infect people tangibly, but also all those material realities being existing in the world as it is, makes it harder to navigate as a Black parent, as a Black sibling. Like my sibling is queer. And so I think a lot about how those, all of those identities make it, like the world as it is, America as it is, a much less safe place for them to exist. And so there are material realities we need to do work on. And those material realities have emotional and spiritual impacts as well. And so right. I, I would talk, you think about that's something called weathering, like on Black women. I think it's part of the reason why Black women are more likely to have gestational diabetes, to have mm. preeclampsia, because pregnancy can be more wearing on Black women because of the things you're thinking about raising a mm. Black child. Even just stress. I mean, stress is so impactful on the body. Absolutely. So there are material realities that need policy change. And that's where I focus a lot of my work. Obi and I have this argument a lot. So great. Obi focuses a lot on like people need to learn and then their minds need to be changed. And I am often of the opinion, people's minds changing means nothing to me if their vote doesn't change. I'm like, irrelevant. Which I feel like we saw. (laughs) It was like, what are all of y'all doing that read all of those books? Yeah, I know. That's interesting. I mean, I feel like Chaz and I have this conversation a lot about climate change because we're like, we need to do all the things that we like got solar panels and we drive an electric car and we, you know, we compost and we do all those things. And we're like, but we still feel like, yes, but more importantly, like entire governments and huge policies that are like, company-wide, country-wide, like all of that needs mm-hmm. to change. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's a both and. It's like Absolutely. Obi's doing great work and changing minds. And he was part of the reason I changed my mind. I mean, and we'll chat about it, but you know, I went to a Grace Dialogues lesson who's led by Bethany Wilkinson. I'm so glad to see now that she's changed it into the diversity gap workshop. She's charging real money that she mm-hmm. deserves, which I which is great because I went Absolutely. for free. And Obi shared some things just his personal experiences, which is like so hard for him to do. You don't want to relive these terrible things like in relation to policing and being pulled over for being a black man and all of these things. Well, I mean, honestly, like hearing, I really appreciate you going kind of through the phase of like over a lifetime, this is kind of how you can feel the material difference and discrepancies between black people and white people because I got tired halfway through right? Like it's so much. It's Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. so much. And for people to sit here and say, it's the same, just work really hard is just ignorant. It's not accurate and it's harmful. It's a harmful approach. And so, uh, yeah, thank you for, for sharing all of those things. So I want to talk just for a second on white privilege. This is something that I kind of feel like this is like my perspective is coming from this way because I'm white, right? And I have white privilege. And so I feel like I want to talk to other white people about understanding white privilege because it's kind of the same as understanding that discrepancy we just talked about. That's a part of it. So I created this little bitty resource that I called the Privilege Rainbow. And it was, you know, I looked at all the stats and I tried to really figure out a way for you to like land on a number. And of course it's arbitrary and it could change and, you know, it's not perfect science, but like, let's talk about all the different factors that factor into white privilege. And the reason that I did this and feel so passionately about this is I went to the Grace Dialogues training and they did the privilege walk, which I'll, I'll tell the listeners about real quick. So basically everybody starts at the same line and you've probably done this, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. right? So everyone starts at the same line and they have a slew of like either questions or statements and you either take a step forward if you resonate, take a step back if you don't. And so questions like I went to a private school or I had to translate something for my parents in my lifetime or there were times that I had to ride the bus or um, my parents have a second home or whatever. So we get to the end of this And we're in this huge field outside of our church. And even though I'm a woman, which like, you know, should put me backwards, I was the second person in line behind a white male. And the most impactful part of this exercise for me was they said, you know, they kind of stepped halfway through everybody and they said, okay, if you're in front of this like imaginary line, I want you to turn around. 
And so I had to consciously make the choice to turn around and see everybody behind me. And it was so impactful. There were black women who hit the fence and couldn't go back farther. And it was just so impactful for me because number one, I think a lot of people don't understand the wealth disparity, right? Like I thought I'm going to be halfway in this group because I'm a woman and that's going to put me behind all of the men. But no, I grew up so freaking wealthy that I had every privilege. I had all of these things. And so I was second in line. But what I like to share with other people is it is the turning around that's important right? Like if we just keep on trucking and keep on living our lives at the beginning of this line, that's why I have these followers who say racism's dead. I don't see this, right? I'm not aware. And it's because we have to turn around. And if you don't turn around, you don't see it, right? Like you, you don't see it. I have done this exercise a couple of times, both at this event and at other events. And I do think I think it's a two-pronged issue. Like, yes, you need to turn around. But I think often turning around can often result in things like white saviorism, where folks are mm. like, well, they're so far behind me. Like, I need to help them. Like, right. Or this idea of that it is a really individual issue. The thing with the privilege walk is that you are walking for yourself as opposed mm-hmm. to walking for neighborhoods, walking for right. schools, walking for these systems in which people have to navigate. Like, what would it mean to Mm. walk as the police department in your community. Wow. What would it mean to walk as the teachers union in your community, which are systems that are in place that folks have to navigate. And so I think in addition to it being, there's an issue with it being individual, right? Like that's helpful, I think for yourself to be like, okay, this has been my individual experience. Mm -hmm. But as a black person and as a black woman, I think very often about the community I'm a part of and the way in which we navigate Mm -hmm. as a whole and the systems I have to navigate. And so that's one. And then I think the other thing is like turning around can become a very condescending, not intentionally, but can Mm. not for everyone can become a condescending position. And I think we've talked, I've heard a lot about, and even I think I might have said in years past, like you need to use your privilege. And I think that was a good starting point. But again, like we've talked about before, you know, it's, that was a kindergarten, first grade way of like thinking about white privilege. What would it mean to abdicate, to like remove yourself from that place? What would it mean to buy a less expensive home so that you could help out a group of folks? What would it mean? Obi and I devote part of, we devote part of our budget every month to mutual aid and we're, Mm -hmm. and that mutual aid is always going to black and queer people and organizations as we are black folks, but our straight folks who are middle-class. And so we think about the ways in which Mm -hmm. our socioeconomic or sexual orientation privilege works. So there's that, like turn around, but also can you walk backwards? Mm. Can you also Mm. walk over there and either I'm not of the agreement, like everyone should move to a poor neighborhood. I'm like, sometimes that's really off-putting and can be really dangerous for the people you live with. Like, I'm not going to ask people who just realized that they were racist to then move in with a bunch of black folks. Makes no sense. I'm sorry. No, I love black people more than that <laughs> to ask racists to live with them. I'm good. Actually, it yeah. turns out. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there is something about like, what are the resources you have as a result of privilege mm-hmm. that you can then use Yes, that you can then give, not even use. Like, oh, I'm using them and I'm getting like a tax refund or like I'm doing this as part of a nonprofit. <laughs> I'm like, no, just get rid of it. Like, just yeah. give it away. When somebody, just give it away. Mm-hmm. Can you give your vacation home once a month to, once a month, once a year to black folks who are in need of rest? Like, is there a black yes. family you know that doesn't have like disposable income and they've got right. four kids and mm-hmm. they're running around ragged and a panorama. Can you <laughs> offer them your vacation home for a month yeah. at no cost? And maybe it's mm-hmm. a loss to you, but that's walking backwards. Right. And so, and then the other thing, right? Like, I do think that the idea of privilege is multifaceted. But when we talk about, because there's white privilege, there's yeah. economic privilege, yeah. there's educational mm-hmm. privilege, there's orientation privilege. Often, however, when we talk about white privilege, a lot of DEI educators, diversity, equity, inclusion, or the new thing is just equity, diversity, and belonging, whatever words we're using today for liberation, mm-hmm. um, often will then input all these other ones to make white folks feel more comfortable. Like, oh, it's not just about whiteness. It's about your social class. It's about your education. Mm. It's about the resources you have. I'm like, yes, privilege as one word, absolutely all of those things. Yes, yes, yes. 
White privilege, however, is specifically about being a white person. It means that you are not working from the historical deficit that Asian folks, Latinx folks, Black folks, Hispanic folks are working from in America because of the ways in which these systems were created and perpetuate racism, right? Like, that's what we're talking about. Like, the nation was created for white folks on Mm -hmm. the genocide of Native folks on the backs of Black folks, right? Involving the internment of Asian folks, the disenfranchisement of Hispanic folks, like that's a historical reality that still materially impacts our systems that we have to navigate day to day in 2022. Mm -hmm. So that's what white privilege is about. Privilege, absolutely multifaceted. I have privilege, you have privilege that is not connected to our race. Right. But white privilege is specifically about the creation of whiteness as a category in America and then what that meant in legal, political, social, spiritual terms. Right. Agreed. Yeah, totally. So I want to juxtapose two things because I think, I feel like I don't understand white saviorism. And I feel like there are times where I feel paralyzed, you know, like I want to speak out and then I'm going to get backlash and I'm like terrified, but it's like, I do it anyway. And I probably make mistakes because that's better than not speaking out at all. But my, I feel like my, like I'm getting paralyzed, like fight or flight is like, okay, how do we navigate? Where's the line, I guess, between like white saviorism. And it's like, let's do all these things. Like, like, let's walk backwards. Let's do these things. Let's do these next level things. Like, okay, we've read the books. (laughs) We have an understanding from Obi, right? Like, but now how do we take action That's not white saviorism. I think that's my final question. Yeah. I think the answer to this question is rooted in, this feels very preacher of me to phrase it this way, but it's rooted in three things, community, solidarity, and intent. So I think when you're thinking about, I'm taking action, what is your intention with that action? And it does require a great deal of honesty. And I think in addition to self-honesty, who are you in community with that can also mirror back to you your intention? Right. Because in my marriage, I might mm-hmm. say, I did the dishes because I want the dishes to be done. Oh, he's like, you did the dishes because you want them to be done and you're mad at me for not doing them. This is true. Um, <laughs> totally. So, and being in community with someone who is not like me helps me to see myself in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so, first, how can you name your intention? Well, so let's say, I'm giving up my vacation home for a month every year to folks of color or folks who are socially disenfranchised mm-hmm. to just have rest. If the intention for that is, to post it on social media. Mm -hmm. The intention of that is to talk about it so that you can claim it as a way that you're taking action with your Black friends or your Latinx friends that you want to talk about it with people. Then that's not action, right? Mm -hmm. That is supremacist benevolence, right? Like it's like when they used to give the slaves a day off on the plantation, that's essentially what you're doing. It actually didn't do anything for the systems in which they're impacting because your intent was poor because that was about making sure they could work better on Monday through Saturday. Mm. So intent, and then your intent mirrored back by community. And then that talks about who is your community. When you're taking action, who are you in community with? I, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm going to talk about this a lot. I'm, I'll be 30 in a couple of months. Yay. And I am at the point in my life where most of my friends are around that age, right? Somewhere between 25 and 35. I do not understand being the age 25 to 35 in the year of our Lord, 2022, and having a racially homogeneous friend group. Sorry, that doesn't make sense. When you were 17... Absolutely. You didn't get to pick where you lived. Your parents put you somewhere. You went to school somewhere. You had very little agency over your choices. College, ah, you had choices. And they mm-hmm. also were very clear groups you could get involved in that were very clearly different cultural, ethnic backgrounds than your own. Mm-hmm. And then you became a grown up where you decide where you live, you decide where you eat, you decide where you buy your groceries, you decide where your kid goes to school. Trash. <laughs> like it's absolute trash and shenanigans if you are 30 years old and you have all white friends. That excuse is old. It is Mm. tired. All your friends are straight. All your friends are middle class. All your friends are natural born citizens. All of that Mm -hmm. makes no sense to me. So you cannot take action if your community looks all like you because you won't have anybody tell you you out of pocket. Right. Right? Like if you don't have someone who is a black person, not that all black people speak for all black experience, but like, hey, I'm doing this for like the black kids in my community. I'm like, that sounds really condescending. Please stop. Uh, Yeah. Like, like I'm going to go to to the school and and do the after school program. I'm like, the teachers are fine. Can you pay your taxes? Can you like, they are qualified. They're really Mm -hmm. okay. So intent and community. And then I think about solidarity, which is sort of the combination of intent and community. The solidarity is like for the mutual benefit of your community. If I see 
raising free Black children as something that is beneficial for everyone we are in community with. Mm -hmm. If my children are free, then that frees up other children. Mm -hmm. If my children know their belonging and worth in the real history of this country to make actual change, should they choose to get involved in that way? Because that's not something that all Black people are given as a job to do. Mm -hmm. That frees up voting for everybody. It frees up access to home loans for everybody. It frees up the ways in which we think about punishment and care and police state for everybody. Like, yes, an abolition or restructuring or reform, wherever you land, on the police state will most dramatically impact Black people and Black queer folks. But it will also impact children of all race and ethnicities who are going to school with police officers right now who are teaching in classrooms, who are not qualified, who are armed teaching English and what that does to a child's psyche. If we think about safety and care, what would that mean for school shootings? So for me, I think when the ways in which to combat white saviorism, in addition to like ongoing education is questioning intent, having that intent mirrored back to you or questioned by those you're in community with being in an actual this word has been banged to the ground, but an actually diverse community. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I have black friends. That girl at work that you said you liked her hair every time she changes it is not your friend. Right. Um, like who's in your house? Who's, mm-hmm. Who are you doing life with? Who are your kids going to school with? Who do they right. want to spend time with when they go to school? Because if you've got all white friends and your kid goes to school with a bunch of black kids and then they don't want to be friends with those kids, it might be on you, mama. It mm. might be your fault because they don't even know it's a thing you can do or they're yeah. uncomfortable with it or they don't know if you're, mm-hmm. how you'll feel about it. Right. And then solidarity about like, okay, am I making choices that are mutually beneficial for my community or is this just beneficial for my self-image, beneficial for my tax bracket? Is this beneficial for my life? Oh, oh, I want my kids to be around black kids. I'm like, cool. Is your kid safe to be around black kids? Have Mm -hmm. you done the work in your home and your community so that your child's not causing harm to black children? Yeah. So I think that's the ways in which the things that have to be underneath the action taken to combat or work against white saviorism. Yeah. I love that. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. So next I'd like to, sometimes I'm like, we can't, we can't solve these problems. I'm like, next up, white supremacy. I just feel like there are these words that white people, like even like white privilege, people are like, ah, like I'm scared of that term or like I get really, I get hives when I hear it. And I feel like white supremacy is just like next level. Like, I just feel like people, I feel like what I see is like, the left in America being like, uh, you tried to launch a coup against our government at the Capitol on January 6th. Turns out we found out based on who was there, it was rooted in white supremacy. And then the right is like, that's not it at all. You know what I mean? Like it had nothing to do with that. Like, I feel like anytime that I hear this like white supremacy tag added to something, like whether it's a belief or a view or an event, people are just like, it blows their minds. Like, how could this be rooted in white supremacy? There's no way. Like, it's just, people are just baffled. So can you describe to us, like, what is white supremacy? And how do you personally, as a Black woman in America, see it still to this day playing out? Sure. It's interesting to me that most folks would see white supremacy as extreme. This also feels like the thing where we were taught about the KKK in elementary school and then no one ever walked out sort of the continued life of those beliefs and practices in the life of America and the lives of people. So I actually see white supremacy as tied to the idea of white normalcy, right? So white supremacy is the belief that whiteness, whether it's the actual skin and the presence of whiteness, the practices and traditions of, and this is whiteness in America. Again, these are very American like definitions Mm -hmm. because race is so different and so Mm -hmm. therefore it's different and every Mm -hmm. place you go but the traditions and beliefs practices and power of white folks as supreme as being best and i think what folks fail to realize about white supremacy is that when you see something as best it's also what's seen as normal right so like white hair being normal like i can't go to dry bar guys unless i put a bunch of notes in dry bar to let them know like i'm black and i need to blow out i need someone who knows what they're doing when they blow out my hair that's white supremacy. The fact that I can't even go to a hair salon without saying like, by the way, your whole service, which is not, if it was, if it was like, we do white people's hair, if that was their thing, like, okay, cool. That's your thing. Off you go. Like, do your yeah, thing. Do go your to shit. white people's hair. Yeah, totally. But it's like, we're a blowout bar 
And I can't get a blowout unless I both put notes in the app and call to make sure that whatever woman is touching my head knows what she's doing. And that was a learning yeah. experience for me. <laughs> I had to go yeah. and be like, you have the, what's happening? Yes. White supremacy is often seen and practiced out as white normalcy. Right. Which is why white people can't see it. One thing that I learned at Grace Dialogues was when we were talking about like, okay, white people, let's describe white culture. Like a lot of times we can't, right? Because to us, this is life. It's normal, right? Like this, everything that we experience is normal. Like I go to dry bar, they give me luscious curls and I walk out and I'm not affected by the white normalcy of that experience because I fit into the normalcy. And so it is, it's tough to see it from within it, which is why I think people are like, it doesn't exist. Or like, I don't know what you're talking about because you just live it. You just experience it. I mean, it's even, uh, and this is, this happened this week, right? So like in the, in, in the Senate this week, they're voting and talking about debating voting rights legislation. Mm-hmm. And Senator Mitch McConnell made a comment that said, African-Americans vote just as much as Americans do. Like, <gasps> Wait, what? He, in his statement, separated Black folks from Americans, which is wild because the, he didn't say, if he had said, he didn't say Black, he said african Anyway. Yeah. So he said African-Americans versus get to vote just as much as Americans. Americans. Yeah. It has been obviously like he's getting, as he often is, torn to pieces on the <laughs> yes. interwebs. Um, yeah. Often. But it was one of those moments where it was like, that's, I think what people fail to realize that as a black woman, I hear that in other things. I hear that sentiment in other things. I hear that sentiment in other practices. I see that in other places. So as a black woman in America, like there's the hair issue, right? Like I don't only go to black stylists, but I do make sure that like whatever stylist I'm going to has had experience with my hair because it is a different texture. And in a lot of hair schools, not all of them, but a lot of hair schools, they're taught how to do hair on one or two textures. Like you got curly, you got straight. Like those are not, those are not the only things. No. Which I even think white women who have like a more curlier or like coarser texture will tell yes. you like they have no idea they're doing my hair. That's why you've got like curly hair and wavy girl movement on like all the TikToks. <laughs> yes, exactly. But also a lot of them are just like, they're using black hair products. I'm like, we've been doing this yes. forever. Yeah. I have a friend who like keeps sending me all the products she's trying and it's like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's been a thing. <laughs> it's been around. We've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> right. So there's that. There's like we, we talked about earlier, the white normalcy in medical education, mm-hmm. right? There was mm-hmm. the, the example you talked about with dermatology, but there also in the last couple of weeks has been a black medical student who did a drawing of a black baby in utero in a black woman's body. And a bunch of women and pregnant people and black folks ever like, I have never seen an image of a black child in utero mm. in a black body. Because all of, even on the apps, right? Like I have one app that lets you pick skin tone, but all the other apps, I'm looking at like a white, and they don't have, no, they don't have melanin for a while. That's real. That's a valid thing. Their skin is see-through mm-hmm. for a long time. But once it's not see-through anymore, I'm looking at a white child in a white woman's belly. And people are like, well, that's not that big of a deal. I'm like, the imagination, I have to, this is, I grew up in predominantly white spaces. So I grew up around predominantly white, tiny humans. When I was a children's minister, okay, I'll tell you that church mm-hmm. is very white. It's a bunch yep. of white children who I clearly love because Ella's one of my favorite <laughs> children to walk anywhere ever at all. However, when I was really young, like 14 to 17, when I would imagine my children, I had to work to imagine black children because I didn't spend time with them because everywhere I went, wow. white children were normal. In my textbooks, wow. in the childcare I went to, in the churches, in the Sunday school curriculum, like where nobody in the Bible is white. Nobody. Nobody. You know, like all the kids, all kids you just talked to were white. Jesus was white. Moses was white. Right. Right. So like it is insidious in the ways in which we teach people, children and adults. It's insidious in what's available to folks. It's insidious in a bunch of businesses. Like I buy urban skincare, it's literally what it's called, because other skincare is not aware of the ways in which my skin may or may mm-hmm. not be different. Mm-hmm. And so those are like day-to-day things, right? Mm-hmm. But the idea of white culture being normative, right? Like even in seminary, there are times in class where they'll be like, oh, the American church, blah, blah. And I was like, black churches don't do that. 
us. Yeah. Fun fact, that's, we don't, that's, that's not, not an issue. Uh, and so, right. but people will say, even people's American culture, oftentimes people say, there are things that are um, like American cultural norms that are like true for most folks experience in mm-hmm. America, but it's equally true that there are subcultures that are related to ethnicity and race, right? Like there are mm-hmm. black subcultures, there's an Atlanta subculture, there are queer yes, subcultures, yeah. there are mm-hmm. immigrant subcultures. Right. And so when people say American culture, often what they mean is white culture. Hmm. Yeah. You know, like I think those are the way, some of the ways in which white supremacy and white normalcy is insidious in the ways in which we do life, are insidious in our day to day life, insidious in the ways in which children are raised, in which schools are functioning, the ways in which like care industries, like hair and yes. skincare. Yeah. It's interesting. I use like this clean cosmetic company, Beauty Counter, and they released like, I want to say 18 shades of foundation, super light, all the way dark. And when they did that, they said, this doesn't exist in clean, non-toxic cosmetics. Like the shade range, that's not a thing. And it's just like, guys, we're in 2022. So I think this is such a great, the way that you're comparing white normalcy and white supremacy, like I've never heard that before. And I'm just chewing on it. And I think it's so important. And my brain right now, I'm just curious, like white normalcy that sounds harmful. Like the way that you're describing, like my first thought is like that white normalcy doesn't sound like a bad thing, but it is. That sounds harmful the way that you experience white normalcy. And also white supremacy, we've seen, especially in the past few years, that turn violent, right? So how does that happen? Like how does it go from white normalcy to now we're like running people over with our cars at protests or we're storming the Capitol. Like, how do you feel like that terrorism is incited? How does it turn to that? I think what it is, is that white supremacy is the fearful and physically violent manifestation of trying to preserve white normalcy. Yes. So you've got kiddos, teenagers, and adults who've been raised under white normalcy. It is normal for white folks to be the forefront. It's normal for white folks to be the norm in commercials and in TV shows and in political power and in social positions. And it is normal for white concerns or even non-global majority concerns to be at the forefront. And I think white supremacy is the violent act, the physically violent, it's all violent in different ways, the Mm -hmm. physically violent act that comes out of seeking to preserve white normalcy. Because I, again, I don't, I don't think the belief system between white normalcy and white supremacy is that different. Right. The difference is that white supremacy is more likely to be physically violent than white normalcy. For example, white normalcy might be a white child has white dolls with white hair. They're used to going into stores, talking to white women. They buy things with white girls on them. So they're Mm -hmm. used to White supremacy is where you see these deeply unsettling videos of white women in physical places who are having breakdowns, emotional and psychological, it appears, breakdowns about having to interact or see power or not be the first considered in public spaces in response to a woman of color, whether that woman be Asian or Black or Mm -hmm. Native. That's white supremacy is that it was, you were working so hard to preserve what you see as normal as it is connected to race that you are being physically violent to those around you. Mm-hmm. Right? Like normal the, and better. Like white people are first and that's better and that's the order of things. Well, that's, that's, feel, that's the issue with norms, yes. right? Like mm-hmm. the, I think what we, we, norm feels like this neutral term, but it's not. What mm-hmm. is normal is seen as better. Like it is normal to go at, for a long time, to go to a hospital, to birth your child. So lots of folks would be like, oh, home birth? Right. That, because it's not the norm. If mm-hmm. something's less than, that means the thing that's normal is better. There are two, yeah. only two, in normalcy, there are two options. It's normal mm, or not normal. Not normal. Mm. And not normal is lower than normal. Therefore, normal and supreme are the same. Mm, yeah. That's Those a great way thing. to say it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like once something is not normal, if something was not normal, it just is like, oh, it's just not normal. And it was on the same playing field. Okay. Then normalcy and supremacy might be different, but that's not how we talk about things. Right. It is normal 
to send your kid to daycare. It is normal to have a hospital birth. It is normal, depending on what circle you're in, to breastfeed. It Uh is normal to wear your hair this way. It is Mm -hmm. normal to go to this kind of church. It is normal to buy homes in this area. And what isn't normal is seen as less than, which you either hear in tone, you either hear in behavior, you might even see in your friend groups, people move away from you or don't want to interact Mm -hmm. with you anymore because you've made choices in this way. And I'm using this sort of like parenting language, A, because I think I'm thinking about who your primary audience is. Mm -hmm. It's also my primary audience because of like where I've done work. Right. But I think also it's easier for folks to understand it there when they don't have the language or the muscle to understand it in race or gender or sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so it's my deep conviction that normalcy and supremacy are the same thing. Supremacy Mm -hmm. is merely the physical violence that comes out of the white normalcy as a belief because the way we function is normalcy and supremacy are the same thing. It's nuts. Yeah, that's so real. And it's so crazy. Well, I want to ask you, it seemed like, you know, people who wanted to engage in this post-George Floyd world, they're hearing you might have these maybe unintentional beliefs or whatever. Let's read these books. Let's do these things. We talked a little bit about walking backwards, but I feel like it actually really relates to what we were just talking about because I think I think that what I see is people who are here, they're up high and they don't want to come down, right? Like I want to stay up high. I want it to be easy for my child to get a job. I want to know that I'm going to get a job. I want to be able to get a home loan. I want to send my kids to good schools. I want to have a nice house. Like I want to be safe, whatever. People don't want to relinquish any of those things. Like I don't want to, I don't want to walk backwards. I don't want to do these things. And I think that's where a lot of people who are unwilling to engage in this work, I think that's a a lot of the motivation is I like where I am because it's been really great being white in America and I don't want to walk backwards. But I think that's the job. That's our, that's our job. So, so what are some, and you've like mentioned some here and there, but like here I am, like I feel like personally, to be honest, I'm in this space where I'm like, I feel passionate about this. I want to be an anti-racist. I want to be helping with equality and liberation. And that is my goal. At this point, I feel like I've mostly been in the learning phase and I want to move into an action phase, which I hope is where a lot of my listeners will be too. So what are these next level things that you feel like we should be doing and a lot of us are not doing? And I want to know specifically like materially, where do you personally feel like is the best way to give money or to spend time or to what can we relinquish? Yeah, I think materially there are a couple of things. Primarily right now, because of the way in which policies and systems are in place, that mutual aid and giving direct funds to folks should be primary. So Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is, it can be really easy to go through a nonprofit or mm. maybe like a large organization's fundraiser. You know, even when you're at the grocery store and like, do you want to give money to this underfunded yes. school here and get your name on other thing? That's an easy thing to do, but often that money gets filtered out and very mm. little actually goes to those who need it most. Hmm. And so that's why... So mutual aid is the idea that you're in relationship with folks and you are sharing mutually beneficial resources. So it might mean for when Obi and I, Obi and I have been childless for four years now. So Mm -hmm. during the pandemic for that, I knew I had time as a resource. So for me, it meant like offering babysitting to friends Mm -hmm. at like no cost. Like, hey, I can come over and do like mass care for your child. And Mm -hmm. that might mean that they come over and like walk my dog or that they like review something that I've done on social media, like as like a a mutually beneficial resource. Mm the way we do mutual aid right now is that I have a community member who is like handy at all things, all things, handy at all things, lawns, building, all things. So they'll come over and do whatever we need, but we send them a certain amount of money and we buy their groceries every month. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so mutual aid forces that community solidarity piece that we talked about earlier. It mm. also is going to have a more direct impact. It's also going to, it requires you to be in community with people. You can't be like, oh, can I buy you groceries? Like a stranger on the street. Um, like, no, no, thank you. I'm really okay. Um, yeah. Are you going to watch my kids and then I'll buy you groceries? Like that's a weird thing to do with someone you're not in community with. So, right. and then in mutual aid, you also have the opportunity to impact multiple systems, right? Like maybe somebody needs transport. They don't have a car. Mm-hmm. And so you can get them to work or to get their kids to where they need to go. And then in result, maybe they're helping you do the lawn or or they, you guys share meals once a week. Like you, like, hope that we make two meals for you a week, you make two meals for us a week, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
So I think mutual weight is a good push to see if you're in community. Right. And to make sure that there's a direct, almost immediate impact on folks. The other way I would say is direct funds. Like when you see a GoFundMe or you see somebody raising money, like I'm constantly seeing fundraisers come up from folks like that are often like black folks, queer folks, unhoused folks, single mothers who need direct funds to make like this month work. Mm -hmm. So when you see those, send it without needing to know what happens to it, without needing to like qualify. Are we sure it's going to the right thing? Right. Why is that? It's... It's a, it's a morality complex, but like, that's okay. another podcast, but like, yeah. but it's like a need to know that you like, oh, I can't say I did it unless I know it was the right thing. Like, what if you just gave it mm-hmm. period point blank the end? Mm-hmm. And that, and I think that's, that's true. Also like unhoused folks in your community, like just give them the money, mm-hmm. give them mm-hmm. money, yep. drive away. And so mutual aid and direct funds. I think getting involved in an organization that's led by Black and queer folks in your community that is working towards material change in some sector. So whether that's an educational equity organization, whether that's a a voting rights organization, whether that's an organization that's working on social impact in general, Mm -hmm. A, should be led by Black and queer folks because Mm -hmm. those are the folks most impacted by systems of disenfranchisement and then getting involved and not needing to be in charge of anything. I'm going to be their social media director. I'm going to be in charge of fundraising. Like, no, just go and listen and do what they tell you to do. Like, if they say show up this thing, show up this thing. They need blankets, Mm -hmm. bring the blankets. Like, you don't need to be the best. You don't need to be the one important. You don't need to be mentioned anywhere. Just go and do the thing, follow directions, and then go home. And so I think... Those three things I think are super important. I think for parents in particular, I think about where you send your kiddos to school. Mm -hmm. So in my experience, I know lots of white parents and families who are like, I care about this. I want to be anti-racist. And then you send your kid to a private charter or a private school. Trash. Untrue. Mm -hmm. Because the more kids go to private schools, less funds go to public schools, the less funds that are available to black and brown children. Hmm. And I think what needs to be said about that in particular, is that if you are someone with the privilege to send your child to a private school or a private charter school, it likely isn't that significant where your child goes to school because a lot of their education is happening at home anyway. Mm-hmm. Like if you're sending your child to a private school, you've probably got over a hundred books in your home. You're probably mm-hmm. listening to podcasts, watching and like watching news, having interesting conversations, exposing mm-hmm. your child to different things and where they go to school. It's really not that significant. So if like they've got a teacher who's overwhelmed with 30 students, you can send your kiddo, teach your kiddo how to be compassionate, how to be in solidarity with other folks. And then you can teach them to read at home. Mm-hmm. Or they probably That's were reading when they got there. a great perspective. That's such a great perspective. And I think a lot of times people make, like, I want to be any racist, but I don't want to give this up. Like, then you don't right. want to be any racist. You don't. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. So yeah. that's, you want to feel good. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but this is explicit is what I'm going to say about this. A lot of people's like, I want to do something. It's just moral masturbation. You want to feel better. Sure. It ain't got nothing to do with me. Mm. It has nothing to do with black people, has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, has nothing to do with a a world we imagine that's more free and more Mm. just and where more children and people belong. It's got nothing to do with that. It's about you getting a high. You can do it on your own time. Yeah. I have nothing to do with that. Don't don't include me. Yeah. Watch Freedom Riders. It does nothing to do with me at all. I think this is for uh, like around living, right? Like, like I said earlier, I, I'm not asking white folks to go move into black neighborhoods. Those are safe spaces that you're going to interrupt. I was mm-hmm. asking you to do that. But I am asking you to get involved to make sure that like where areas are getting gentrified in your neighborhood or your community, are you involved in advocating to make sure that as much expensive housing is being built so you can buy your big expensive home is as much affordable housing being built? Because that's mm-hmm. where the gentrification argument is right now. No one's right. community development gentrification is happening. Mm-hmm. Can you be on the side of power because you may have more money, you may have more access to resources and say, yes, we want, I want, yes, I'm going to buy a house in this neighborhood. But in order for me to do that, I need you to build just as many units that are affordable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you make a neighborhood yeah. coalition that says like, no, yeah, we're not, we're not opening, we're not open to this kind of development in our area. That's like $500,000 homes, which is expensive in Georgia, maybe it's not somewhere else. Yeah. Unless you're also building equal or double the amounts of affordable housing. Yeah. Is public transit still going to come to this area? Or are we cutting it down because it makes us not look good? So, in Georgia, that's a whole thing. Marta, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I, so for me, it's it's mutual aid, it's direct funds, it's where you'd send your child to school. And I, I want to say about that, like, that also means you're doing work at home to make sure you're not sending racist kids to school. Because yeah. like, I, look, children are my favorite people on God's green earth. Ask anybody anywhere. But I have met several white children who are practicing racism under the age of six. What? So what? 
Oh my gosh. That's the only so one place scary. they learn that. Yep. Oh my gosh. That's and they so don't scary. know it. I'm not mad at the child. Right. But I'm like, hey, mama, you think you're doing good things, sending your kid to this space because you're, do- you're just like sending them without doing any other work. You're just oh sending gosh. this white child who's been raised in white normalcy, who has no understanding of the way in which the world works and throwing right. them into a space where they're causing harm to black children. Yeah. And I'm 29. I remember being caused harm as a child. Right. So oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's okay. It's, well, it's okay. I'm so glad but. to hear these things because I feel like the order in which you shared them and the things that you shared, like that wouldn't have been my next step naturally. And so I'm glad. I, I, I feel like I'm just like, I'll just like give someone money somewhere. I don't know. You know, so I feel like the community piece is really key and challenging for me. And Denver is arguably a really white place. It's like, I think the last I checked, it's 5% black, I want to say. So it's it's a lot easier in Atlanta, but that's no excuse. And the community piece is really key. The mutual aid, I feel like that's really great. So yeah, thank you. Well, there's we could talk about this for three hours, but since we're at the hour mark, I want to be respectful of your time. Well, thank you so much for coming, Kiani. We have just learned and grown so much from you. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Kiani, for being with us today. What a powerful, important conversation to have. I definitely learned so much myself. I always want to be so clear that I am learning all of these things right alongside you guys, my listeners. I am not an expert in this field, which is why I bring experts on to show me my flaws, show me where I can be growing and where we can be growing as a community. And I was really convicted by a lot of things in this podcast, and I will definitely be chatting with Chaz about some of these things ways that we can be moving forward better. I loved her tips at the end of like, how can we be doing more? And we need to be in community and we need to be doing these things. So thank you, Kiani. It was such a fantastic conversation. If you want more info, I would love for you to go to Kiani's website. That's in the show notes. You can follow her on Instagram and Twitter where she's really active. She shares tools and lots of curriculum on her Instagram and her website. Additionally, you can get more information about the diversity gap, which is the workshop that I went to that I mentioned in the podcast in the show notes as well. And Bethany Wilkinson, the creator of the diversity gap workshop also has a book that is linked in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I will see you next week.